Don't sit down just yet. Grab your Bibles and stand with me. And um, we're going to read the Scripture together. I think it's really important that we honor God's Word uh, by standing for it. There's nothing magical about it. But, but man, how many of you know that the Word of the Lord uh, it just does whatever it intends to do by, because of the God that spoke it? It just It's powerful. The Bible says it's living and powerful that it's sharper than any two-edged sword, and that, that it, my paraphrase is from that scripture in Hebrews 4, that the word of the Lord is designed to figure you out. So it, it, I learned very young in my Christian walk, it was an arrogant thing to think I could just plop down on my couch and read the Bible. It was a wise thing to sit down on my couch and let the Bible read me. That was a, that was a much better strategy uh, when we approached the word of God. Amen? Amen. So as you're standing, turn to Galatians chapter 3. For those of you who don't have Bibles this morning, we provided one for you in the seat in front of you. You'll see a little blue Bible there. And um, if you're going to use one of those Bibles, we're going to be on page 566. (coughs) uh, uh, We always like to also remind you that if you don't have a script, if you don't have a copy of the scriptures, you don't have a Bible at your home, then we want you to take that with with you as our gift to you. Um, we want to bless you with the scriptures, and uh, uh, hopefully they'll, they will work their transformative life in you as you engage with them, and so please take that. But we're going to be in Galatians chapter 3, and we're going to start right in verse 1. This is what we read. Oh, foolish Galatians, how would you love it if I started a point of my sermon with that line? Oh, foolish Northridge Life Church. But Paul has built up his argument, and he's he made a good one that that's an appropriate designation for the church at Galatia. So this is is what he says. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles 
so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Thus says God's word, you may now be seated. We're looking at the six key figures in the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. And um, a couple weeks ago, I talked to you about Adam and how he was the, the, uh, just an example of Jesus. And then Jesus comes and Paul calls him the last Adam um, because he perfected what Adam failed to do. And then last week, uh, Pastor David uh, preached about Noah. And didn't he do a great job on that? It was fantastic. And so we're so grateful for that, Dave. And today we're going to consider Abraham. And his story is a pretty, pretty good chunk of the book of Genesis. It, it goes all the way from chapter 11 through chapter 25. And a lot has happened in the Bible's story since Dave finished up the story of Noah. And, and since Noah and his wife and his sons and his daughters-in-law stepped off the ark, approximately 400 years have passed in our story today. After the flood, Noah spoke prophecies over his sons, blessings that kind of had a prophetic edge to them. And he determined where they would live on the earth and what kind of peoples that they would propagate in their line. Um, In the centuries since the flood, Noah's descendants have increased for massively, exponentially. They've they've increased um, to a significant number and ancient men of renown have come from their line. And for a time, After the flood, all the world dwelt in a place called the Plain of Shinar, and that's in modern-day Iraq. And they had the same language, and they had the same dialect, and there wasn't one speaking Spanish and one speaking Chinese and one speaking German. They were were just all speaking the same language. And there, because of that unique uh, trait of their, their, their culture, their civilization, working with one mind, they built an impressive society. And when they built that impressive society, they became, just as most of us would, very, very proud. God has only 400 years before destroyed the earth, and now they're looking at the work of their hands and say, well, 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 look what we have done. Look what we have done. In their arrogance, they begin this grand building project and in this fit of self-sufficiency coupled with creativity and ingenuity they attempt to construct a tower to heaven to serve as a lasting monument that all the world will know about and all the world will see to their greatness they wanted everybody to know just how awesome that they were but see god is a merciful god And you might read the story of the Tower of Babel and you might think, man, there's some judgment going on there. But what I want you to see is that God, because he's so merciful, he was unwilling for them to live under the delusion that they could climb their way into equality with God. God said, "Ah, that's not how this works, folks. So in my mercy, I'm going to kind of mess with your plans just a little bit. A lot of times you have been frustrated in your life when you found God messing with your plans. And I am here to tell you this morning that it was his mercy that did it. Come on. It was his mercy that did it. When your plans got messed with, it was his mercy that messed with them. Because he knows what what you need to know. He knows what you need to be. And he's working to get you where you need to go. And we can trust him. And so what God does is he confuses their language. He actually literally segregates their languages so they can't communicate with each other anymore. And and that causes them to go into camps of people that that speak the same language and they disperse throughout the, the, the region and eventually throughout the whole world. And shortly after this point in Genesis 
chapter 11, we're introduced to a man named Terah. Now, probably a lot of you, even those that read your Bible, have not considered Terah a lot. But Terah had a son, and his name was Abram. And Abram had a wife, and his, her name was Sarai. And at some point, Terah decides to leave his home in that plain of Shinar in, the, in a place called Ur of the Chaldees, and he intends to move to Canaan, which is in modern-day Israel. And, and it's a land that would play a very important part in their unfolding story. And, and they make it, they, they start this journey, Terah and his, his sons and their wives, and they make this journey, and they, they make it as far as a place called Haran, and that is in modern-day Turkey. And, and when they get to Haran, unfortunately, Terah dies. And so his plan's unfulfilled, never makes it to Canaan, he dies. And he's approximately 350 miles northeast of the place where he intended to go. And this is where our story really picks up. The first verse of the next chapter, chapter 12 of Genesis, we read this. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you And him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Now, how many of you would like to have a prayer meeting where God tells you all of that? That would be pretty great, wouldn't he? He kind of feels like Abram won the spiritual lottery, didn't he? It's it's what When we we read that, it's kind of the, the impression we get. Abram is 75 years old, not a young man by any stretch. He's living in Herod where he has just buried his father. Imagine that there's, there's some grief, there's some confusion. We're not told what his plans for his own future were. Would he stay? Would he proceed? But it doesn't matter because just like with those guys at the Tower of Babel, the mercy of God steps in and God gloriously overrules all his plans. He just steps in and says, hey, I got, an, I got a, a plan laid out for you, Abram, and it's good. You're going to like this. And what we need to do when we look at this passage from Genesis 12, we need to understand that there are three things that God does with Abram. First, God chooses him. I said God chooses him. Please understand that nowhere in this passage are we told that Abram hit his knees and was seeking God's direction. He wasn't seeking God's help. He wasn't seeking God's blessing. He wasn't even seeking God's glory. Blasphemy. But if you want scriptural evidence from the Bible that what I'm telling you is true, this is what happens. Several years later, Joshua is recounting to the people of Israel how they got to this point in their history. And these are the words that we read in the book of Joshua, chapter 24. It says, Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord. So now we have an even higher authority. He's saying this came directly to me from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, and listen, they served other gods. Abram was not one bit interested in what God wanted for him at this point. But guess what? God was real interested in Abram. He was real interested in Abram. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds just a little bit like my own story. I didn't care at all 
all about what God wanted. But man, did God care about he, what he wanted for me. We don't find him seeking. We don't find him worshiping. We don't even talk, find him speaking to God. Instead, we read, the Lord said to Abram. Abram wasn't praying and sacrificing. And finally, when he had worked up enough sweat, the cloud appeared and a voice came out of it. No! The Lord said to Abraham, to Abram. He spoke to him. God initiated contact just like he does for you and me when he intends for us to know and to experience him. Next, God tells him what he's going to do with the rest of his life. He'd seen his father sometime before set out with his own strength to move his family to a better place, only to die far, far from the land where he intended to go. But now God promises to take his hand And to lead him by that hand to a land that God had already chosen for him. He said, no, no, no. I got something for you. One of the most beautiful aspects of being a follower of Christ is being able to say, man, I have no idea what's next. But Lord, I trust you with my future. It's a glorious thing. The old saints when I was growing up used to say, I may not know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. The great thing to say, to know, we can trust him. I don't have to worry about what to eat and what to drink and what to wear and where to work. And I don't have to worry about my own health. I, I don't even have to worry about my own eternal security. I am not working my way into heaven. Because Jesus, since the moment we met, he's promised to take care of me every single step of the way. And he does so for all who belong to him. That's not all. He doesn't just choose him and lead him. God promises to bless him and to make him a blessing. One word you might have noticed was missing from this passage we just read in Genesis 12 is the word, two letters, if. You don't read God saying, if you, Abraham, will do X, then I will bless you. Mm -mm, It's not in there. Look again. God intends... To bless this man. He says, I will bless you. And I told you this a few weeks ago. Let me remind you again. God always does what he intends to do. What God starts, God finishes. And he said, I will bless you. And I will make you a blessing. And through you, every family on the face of the earth is going to be blessed. God chose him. God led him. God blessed him as an act of grace. And let me tell you something. If you are here, if you are listening to me, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a parallel. God has chosen you. God is leading you. And God will bless you because of the grace that's been poured out on you through Jesus Christ our Lord. He promises to do it. As we go further in Genesis, we see that God is so serious about this that he repeats his promise to bless Abraham. He restates it in different words at times, but he repeats it and reinforces it in Genesis 12 and 13. But God expands this blessing that we found in, in Genesis 12 to Abraham because he says this time, he says, to your offspring, not just to you, Abraham, but to your offspring, I'm going to give this land. Oops. Oh, man, don't you hate it when God doesn't have all the facts? God God didn't know this. There's a, there's a huge problem that Abraham, he had no heir. There was nobody in his house that there was no offspring. And 
And God apparently just hadn't figured that out. I guess he just hadn't done his research to know who it was that he was talking to. And it was worse because not only did Abraham not have any offspring, he had married this woman, this woman full of promise, and it's beautiful. And, and when he married her, he found out that she was infertile and completely incapable of having children. His situation wasn't going to change. So when God restates the promise one more time in Genesis 15, Abraham reminds God of the difficulty that he had apparently overlooked. Why would God not do better research? And he says to to God, Abraham said, Oh Lord God, what will you give me? I continue childless. Even the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring and a member of my household will be my heir. And this member of his household named Eliezer, we don't know a lot about him from the Bible, but is most likely Abram's chief servant in his house. And Abraham was trying to assist the Almighty. What a big guy he must have been to help out God, trying to help him out a little bit. And so he put, put Eliezer forward as a substitute heir so that God's promise could be fulfilled wasn't exactly what God said, but, you know, this is close enough. We'll, we'll put forth Eliezer and maybe God can still do what he wants to do. But thankfully, you see, what Abram didn't know is that God has no interest in second string heirs. He has no interest in hand-me-down promise fulfillers. No, no, no interest in that whatsoever. See, what God's intention is, his purpose is to raise up sons for himself by his glorious grace through Jesus. And Abram didn't know it. He didn't know it. So Genesis 15:4, God responds. He says, behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man, Eliezer, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Now watch this beautiful picture. Watch this, what God does for Abram. He takes him outside. He brought him outside and he said, look toward the heaven. Number the stars. You see, Abram didn't live in New York or San Antonio or Houston. Where Abram lived, when, when all the final flames died down from the torches and the candles, it was just a massive sea of black dotted with just millions and millions of stars. And Abraham's looking at that. And God says this, look at the, look at the heavens, number the stars. Start counting. Get your calculator out, Abram. And he said, and if you are able to number them, then God said to him, so shall your offspring be. But well, hold on. Sarai, she's, she's infertile. Look at the stars, Abram. But I, you know, I'm 75 years old. Look at the stars, Abram. I'm showing you what I've got in store for you. What follows is the most important verse in Abram's story. It's also one of the most significant verses because it both prefigures the gospel in the Old Testament and it helps us to understand this gospel in the New Testament. Paul cited this verse both in Romans 4 and Galatians 3, which we read this morning, and, and, to, and he did it to help believers get a grip on what the gospel was all about, how it was different from the religions that they had known in Judaism and pagan Rome and all that. God, So God has chosen. Let me get you back caught up. God's chosen. He's led. He's blessed Abram. And now he tells him that he's going to give him a natural-born son so that all these promises can be fulfilled. And the very next thing the Bible tells us is this, Genesis 15, 6. And he, Abram, believed the Lord. And he, the Lord, counted it to him 
as righteousness. Simple, but incredibly, incredibly profound. God made promises to this man, and he believed them without wavering. And because of his dependence on nothing but the trustworthiness of God's word, God credited him, get this, God credited him with having righteousness that he could have in no other way attained. He said, whoa, I'm not only saying that that I'm going to do these blessings, but now I'm looking at you and you're righteous before me because you believed me. Abram didn't, now get this, some of you have not yet got the point I'm trying to make or the scriptures are trying to make. Abram did not sacrifice his way into, into God's righteousness. Come on, help me. Abram did not sacrifice his way into God's righteousness. Abram didn't pray his way into God's righteousness. Abram didn't moralize his way into God's righteousness. Abram didn't pull out his big fat wallet and pay his way in to God's righteousness. What the Bible tells us is he believed what God had said, and at that point he was considered righteous before God. And even though before and after this point in the story, Abram made some major sinful blunders. God, listen to this. It's going to set you free if you hear it. God was not regarding him according to a law kept or a law broken, but he was regarding him according to his belief, his faith, his trust in the one who had spoken had nothing to do with the law kept, nothing to do with the law broken. It had to do with God had spoken and he believed it. Hebrews 11.8, some of you have heard this chapter called the Faith Hall of Fame, and Abram gets a, a notable place in it. It says, the writer of Hebrews says, by faith, everybody say by faith. By faith, Abram obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive his inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. That's the definition of faith, by the way. You're going, even if you don't know where you're going. By faith, verse 9, he went to live in the land of promise as a foreign land, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, his son and grandson, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder was God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. I love that, that little clause right there. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead, in other words, un- unable to reproduce, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, as many as the innumerable grains of the sand by the seashore. Abram and Sarai maintained their faith not only because they considered, uh, or only rather, because they considered God to be faithful. There's some people that speak, many of them, you all know them, And it would not behoove you to believe them. But when God speaks, it is utter foolishness not to believe what he has said. So they judged him faithful. The King James says they judged him. Not they considered him, but they judged him faithful. They weighed all the evidence. They said, no, we're going with God. God is right. Acknowledging God's faithfulness and goodness, get this, is an act of worship. Sometimes this worship team is up here and and they are just giving it all they've got. And and, and we're all guilty of this. I'm not pointing any fingers because I do it sometimes. And and I'm thinking, well, what about this going on in my life? What about this sickness? What about this need? What about this lack? All of these things and they're just piling up on me. And what I'm doing is I am hearing from this platform 
believe, 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 put your faith, put your trust in God. And I am sitting there saying, I'm in a mess, I'm in a mess, I'm in a mess. It is an act of worship to acknowledge God's faithfulness, His trustworthiness, His believability, His goodness. It's an act of worship. And to fail to acknowledge it is the grossly sinful act of unbelief. We've talked about this. In fact, I think Paul, he's not in here, but I think Paul put something on his Facebook page, which I gave him a good bravo on, that you may have never considered this fact, but every act of sin that we get suckered into is an act of unbelief. Every single one. There's no exception. Doesn't matter what brand of sin you're engaging in. It's always unbelief. See, Hebrews 11:6 says that whoever comes to God must not only believe that he exists. If I asked you to raise your hands, I'm not, but if I asked you to raise your hands, who in this room does not believe that God exists? I am almost certain I would have 100%. There may be a few of you out there, and that's okay, but I... I, I believe that 100% of you would say, yes, I believe God exists. But the the Hebrews writer says that's not enough. He says, we must also believe that he's a rewarder of the one who desperately, diligently seeks. So coupled with the existence that he's out there somewhere in the cosmos is the fact that he is laser focused his attention on you. And when he hears your call, the Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He's a rewarder of those who are seeking him, those who are calling on his name. And then it even adds a third thing to it. it says you've got to believe that he is. It says you've got to believe that he rewards. And then it says that without that kind of faith, it's impossible to please him. So if you think you're pleasing God because of your goody two-shoes lifestyle, I say to you, wrong. Now, I'm not telling you go out and rampantly sin. I'm telling you that you please God by saying, I believe you even when my morality is up here and when it's down here, I believe you. This is, a, this is the whole point of Paul in Galatians 3 that we read. He points out how Abram believed God even before there was a law given. That wouldn't happen for another four or 500 years after this point. There was no work for him to do to appease God. Do this and you'll make me happy. None of that. Just believe him completely, trust him implicitly, have faith in him unwaveringly. Paul asked the foolish Galatians if they received the Spirit of God that was demonstrating himself mightily among them, if they did it by working according to the law. Did you keep all the Ten Commandments and somehow conjure up the Holy Spirit to work among you? And Paul says, no! They did it by faith in what they had heard, the gospel message. He asks if God does miracles among them through strict observance of the law or by faith. The Jews taught that it was through law-keeping that God responds. Now, God doesn't listen to sinners because it's by faith that God is pleased. And Abram, as Abram shows us, Paul says this, Know then, because what they had in Galatians, they had a bunch of Jews that were saying, if you're not doing it like this, if you're not circumcised, keeping the law, keeping the festivals, then you cannot possibly be a part of God's kingdom. And, and Paul says, he just throws a penalty flag and he says, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, not the law keepers, the ones that have heard God and believe him. They're the ones that are directly descended from Abraham, not law keepers that please God. It's trusting faithful believers. And that's not to say, please don't misinterpret my words here. It's not to say that the law doesn't matter. If that were true, God never wouldn't have given it to us. Breaking the law is serious business. This is what Paul said in that same passage. All who rely on the works of the law 
are under a curse. Be warmed and encouraged this morning at church. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So we're going to, because you know we need some equal time here, we're going to give you a chance to boast if you are the one among us, two, three, four, five, a handful, that has kept the law perfectly. If you're the one who has abided by all has has abided by all things written in it and and done all of them, then go ahead, raise your hand. We want to acknowledge, honor you. Go ahead, just get that hand right up. Shall I wait? Of course, it's absurd. We know better. We know better. And and the Bible clearly tells us here that if we don't, if we cannot raise our hand, we're under a curse. You're sunk before you even started floating. You're under a curse. God's word's not mine. If you try to approach God by morality, trying to be a better you, it may surprise you to know that you're under a curse. You're not eventually going to get there. You're not being blessed for trying to do it. You're under a curse. Like Abram's dad, Terah, you're just trying to get to the promised land in your own strength, and you're doomed to drop dead in the sand far from your destination. Unfortunately, because of our fallen nature, none of us can keep the law until we're made alive by Christ. Even then we only keep it imperfectly because we're still trapped in the bodies of flesh with sinful desires, sinful fleshly desires. But when it comes, but when we come and we believe in Christ, that belief is counted to us as righteousness. Now get this, belief, this is the effect that belief has on you. If I were to ask you how many of you have broken the law and, and you acknowledge that because of breaking the law you're under a curse, raise your hand. How many of you would acknowledge that? Anybody, anybody honest enough here to acknowledge that? Well, I've got good news for you. This is why you showed up to church this morning. For those that believe in Christ, the rules haven't changed since Abraham. Your belief is counted to you for righteousness. Your belief is counted as righteousness. It's as though you've never broken a single law. Not one of them. Not from telling white lies to capital murder. Better yet, when we believe That's what Paul is saying. It's when we believe that the Spirit is given and we're free to begin to obey God's laws out of love and not fear. The idea is the essence of the gospel, Galatians 3.8, and the scripture for seeing that God would justify the Gentiles. How? Say it louder. How is he going to justify the Gentiles? By faith. He preached the gospel. And that says the scripture preached the gospel. I love that. I love that. God put this, what he's saying is, God put this, in the Bible, the story in the Bible, so that long after it was there, it would keep, before Jesus, after Jesus, to this very day, it would just be announcing the gospel to us. The scripture preached the gospel beforehand to Abram, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. I don't know, there may be, I say this every few months, but there may be someone here who is an absolute, you know, genetically uh, identified Jew in this room. But most of us at this point in human history in this part of the world are pretty much Heinz 57 mutts is what we are. We have no idea. We have to, and we have to send somebody our spit to find out where we came from. And, um, you know, we don't even know if that's accurate and all this stuff. Um, you know, and so we don't, we don't know who we are. We don't know that. But God knows who we are. And what it says in the Bible, it says that God intended with this one little, you know, Jewish man named Abram came crawling out of Iraq from this one man, 
God says that when I gave him these promises, I was giving them to you who have no idea genetically, nationally, who you are. He says that the idea was to preach to the Gentiles or to, or to justify the Gentiles through the gospel preached to Abraham. In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Abraham believed God. He was regarded as righteous because of his faith. We have believed in Christ, and we are regarded as righteous the same way because of faith. And what have we believed about Christ? What have we believed? We, we believe that we could never, what, what we could never do in obeying the law, he did it. We believe that what we could never want to do in paying the penalty for all of our law breaking, he did it. And if we believe in that, we're counted righteous. Look at this, Galatians 3.12, let's read it again. But the law is not of faith. What he's saying is the law and faith work very, very differently. Uh, This is the law standard, the one who does them shall live by them. But Christ, watch this, this is so good. Uh, We ought to all break out and worship on this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. Do you remember how Jesus died? They nailed him to a couple of old planks of wood. He was nailed to a tree in the Bible. It said way back in the law, it said, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. And, and why did all this happen? Why did he become a curse for us? So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit. How? Through faith. Through faith. By saying to God, you spoke and I believe you. Now, I've used the names of Abram and Abraham interchangeably throughout this message, but we read in Genesis 17 that God changed his name from Abram to Abraham. See, names in that time period were considered much more important than we probably even consider them now in our culture. They're much more meaningful uh, in Abram's time, Abraham's time. And the name Abram, I, I'd never considered this till I wrote this this week, the name Abram meant exalted father. It's a good name. The name Abraham meant father of a multitude. Now think about this. When Terah named his son Abram, it was hoped that someday he would live up to that name, that someday he would be an exalted father in that culture. See, in that culture, sons born to a man were a communication of favor, of blessing, of success, of prosperity. But in the lottery of marriage, he married a barren woman he grew to be an old man with no child. And so this name, this exalted father became not a blessing to him, but a mockery. You'll never be an exalted father, Abram. Never. <laughs> You'll never rise to the, the glory that was intended by your name. You're going to drop dead in the desert just like your daddy did. But one day God shows up and says, I'm your daddy now. I'm adopting you into my family. I'm going to make you mine. And he changed his name, not from Abram, but Abraham, which means the father of a multitude. And what was a constant mockery of him, his name, became to him a constant reminder of the sure, unfailing promise of his father. A constant reminder. He would not only be a father, but he would be a father of a mighty nation called Israel. And then through the work of Jesus, as we spoke about this morning, he would be the father of an immeasurable multitude of those who, like himself, believe and are counted righteous before God. This name would not be like Abram. It wouldn't be a pipe dream or 
a, a wispy cloud of hopefulness. Abraham's, Abraham's status as the father of a multitude would be guaranteed on the integrity of God himself. And if you're here and you have any doubts about the integrity of God himself, let me tell you what it says in the law in the book of Numbers, chapter 23, verse 19. It says this, God is not a man. What's the benefit of that? He's not a man that he should lie. He's not a son of man that he should change his mind. He has, has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill? That's the kind of God we serve. So this, this is what I want to do this morning. I want to get real. I really do. I want to get real. I want to ask you a question, and, and, and I really don't want you to answer it. I mean, seriously, because you might have a temptation when a preacher standing a few feet above you to ask a question like this. You might say, oh, I've got to answer this right because there's people that might see me. I want to ask you a question. I want you to answer it only in your soul. Do you believe God this morning? Do you believe what he has said? I said already that every sin that a man commits is rooted in ugly unbelief. See, when I lie, it's because I don't believe that it's only in the truth where I'm set free. When I give in to my addictions of drugs and alcohol and sex and, and, and workaholism and all those things, when I, when I give in to those addictions because I don't believe that God alone is enough, that he's the source of all my pleasure and all my comfort, when I give vent to the full force of my anger and my temper it's because i don't believe that god is willing or able to vindicate me so i gotta get after it and do it myself worst of all when i try to build a tower to heaven or chart a course for the promised land through my good works and my religious observances i deny both the goodness of the savior and the effectiveness of his sacrifice for me so think about that don't rush man god wants to heal you this morning let me ask you do you believe god or do you believe yourself this morning who do you believe we approach the lord's table we do every every sunday we're going to celebrate as we do every sunday his triumph over sin and death but i think this morning repentance preparing our hearts to come would would look like taking some time to take a fresh look at some scriptures and meditating on him for a moment or two and asking God, listen to me carefully, asking God to help us believe him. Some of us just need to say, God, I believed that at one time. Will you help me to believe it again? Will you awaken me to believe what your word says again? And some of you are going to have to believe him for the very first time. You, you came this morning and you're believing lies about your own life or about God's goodness. And God is saying, I want to awaken you to who I am and, and the promises that you can trust. So as the music plays, this is what I want to ask you to do. We're, we're gonna, the, the churchy part of this morning is over. Some of you might need to kneel in order to really do some business with God. Just turn around and kneel at your seat. Some of you might want to stand just before your God, raise your hands in, in humble submission to what he's saying to you. Some of you, this is how I, you guys probably see me on Sunday mornings, the way I kind of process the, the, the voice of God, the moment in his presence is I just pace. And so I, you're fine. There's no churchy rules in place right now. You can move through the aisles. You can do whatever you want. But I want you to hear these passages that I'm going to read to you. And I want you to do three things. Can we bring the house lights down while we do this, guys? I, I, wanna, I want, to, uh, uh, want you to do three things. First, I want you to ask yourself, 
do I believe? Listen to me carefully. I want you to ask yourself, do I believe these truths so much that my life, my attitudes, my habits reflect it, or am I struggling to live like what I'm about to hear is true? Next, if you know that you're not living convinced of the truth of God's promises, Today, today is the day of salvation. Correct course and repent of your unbelief. Call it what it is and repent of your unbelief. And then lastly, please hear me on this. As you're aware of your weakness and and your your sin and and your unbelief and, and you're wanting to reconnect to the Father, whatever you do, do not make a vow that you won't keep. Don't do it. See, this act of repentance we're going to do right now, you may have to do it over and over and over and over and over until you finally put to death in yourself the unbelief that is keeping you from believing God's promise. So don't make a vow, because remember we read it today, all who rely on the the works of the law are under a curse. Instead, here's what you do. The third thing you're going to do is ask Jesus to keep you reminded of his promise. Listen, how is he going to do it? By giving you his name to bear as your very own. Can we do that? So just let these verses roll over you. I'm going to read them. I'm going to make make a couple of statements, well, actually a couple of questions for you to consider and meditate. And I really want you to slow down. Please don't pull out your devices. Please don't allow yourself to be distracted. If you have to go to the bathroom, hold it. (laughs) Because this is a moment, this could be a holy moment for you to come directly into collision with the beauty and the love and the grace of the Savior. So our first passage is this, Romans 8, 38. For I am sure, I'm confident, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I would ask you this morning, are you convinced? Are you sure that you are safe that you're on firm ground and it's not going to be, you know, the, the chair is not going to be kicked out from under you and that nothing will ever separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus.
49:15 says, "Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually for me. Do you believe this morning that God has not forgotten you? No matter how pleasant or how tragic and painful your circumstance, that God has not forgotten you and so much so that He has literally not painted you on His hands. He has engraved you into the palms of His hands so that He would have a constant reminder of you. And how does that correspond with the nails that pierced His hands as a reminder of you? Ask God if you really believe that He will never forget you. God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Do you complain about things, conveniences that you don't have? Do you even have needs that you have wondered if God is incapable to supply those or if you there's something in you well God is promising that he will supply all your needs if you don't have it it's because God has not determined that you need it so you can trust him you can believe him everything that you have he gave you and he has promised that he will supply all your need according to his riches and glory
Jude one twenty four. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Do you believe that God is the one who is sustaining you, the one that is keeping you from falling, the one that will one day lay you before his throne completely blameless and that there will be great joy in that moment? That God is working his work in you to perfect you. Do you believe it? Word says it.
Psalm 103.11 For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Do you believe that the Lord has, through Jesus Christ, removed your transgressions from you and there's no accounts left to be settled, no debts to be paid because his love for you is galaxies above the surface of the earth. Do you believe that? God of peace, peace towards who? Peace towards you. Will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. If you're harassed and oppressed and in trouble this morning, do you believe that God is bringing judgment day? Not on you. He's the God of peace to you, but he's bringing judgment day on the enemy who is harassing you. And he will soon crush Satan under your feet. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Do you believe that God is is your supply and he's better than anything else you could have? Do you believe that that his presence to you is is constant and that there's not a thing that a man can do to you, a woman can do to you because the Lord is your helper. Do you believe that? Instead of a fish, give him a serpent. Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Do you believe that 
from the goodness of the Father, paid for by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the Holy Spirit is your constant companion companion simply for the asking. That He wants to go with you and protect you and provide for you. Do you believe that? life-changing to hear these words and, and ask ourselves, just point blank, do I even believe that anymore? 10,000 other passages just like it in the Scripture. But if you can attest to the fact that even though unbelieving, like the man in the, in the Gospels who brought their, his son to Jesus and the disciples couldn't cast the devil out, and Jesus looked at the man and said, do you believe I can do this? And he said, I believe Help my unbelief. You might find that your life has a, has a struggle, that there's this pull of unbelief in the, in the midst of your trial to believe. Keep fighting. Keep fighting. Remind yourself of what is true. And if you if that's your commitment this morning, I'm going to ask you all to stand and we're going to go before his throne one more time in worship so that we can, we can affirm. This is a song. I love the bridge of this song. It talks about his unfailing promise. So it gives us a great opportunity to say, Lord, I believe. Count it to me as righteousness and help my unbelief. After that, we'll receive from the Lord's table and we'll be done.